This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A dot com. What's clearing my throats? I'm Robert Evans, and this is once again Behind the Bastards, the podcast where yada yada bad people talk about them, whatnot. This is the uh, fourth chapter of my audiobook, The War on Everyone. It's our second day recording it. Uh, I'm here with Cody Johnston, Katie Stoll. Hey, guys. Hello. We are all <laughs> higher than we were last time. Oh, my goodness. Very so much, much higher. So. Mm-hmm. It's true. First time, last time we yeah. were not high. We Agreed. were not. We were all strung out too. Yeah, tired, and now we're a little bit high. We're you know, more than a little bit high. We're more than a little bit high, but we're not as strung out. Yeah. So I have a, a considerable assortment of throwing things around me. Um, yeah, you're that doesn't worry me at all. Cody called this hypernormalization um, because I I can no longer be satisfied with just just look at this tossing some fucking bagels. Yeah, I mean you have to. Does up the nothing ante for me. Yeah, that. Yeah. Nothing for me. So I have a bag of roughly 20 uh, paper towel rolls. I have to say that right before we started recording, Robert suggested that we all get on <laughs> helmets and armor, and he would practice his throwing knives, and that's a, that's a no. <laughs> pra- practice is a strong word. I just want to throw knives one episode and see if I could stick them in the soundproofing on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would argue that we don't have to be here in front of you for that. Well, so. you could be on my sides. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Okay. And now that you've said that you want to throw around knives, and we're like, no, you can say something a little bad. You can... I have, I have these throw-in Pringles. <laughs> you can throw some Pringles. I have a box of around 12 little 100-calorie packs of Pringles that are all in an open-topped box together. Uh, I'm, I am excited to throw that. If I can kind of wing it, my, my theory, because it's kind of rectangular-shaped, is if yeah. I can wing it like a Frisbee... 
I can get it to go straight until it hits the wall and then bursts like a scatter bomb over an Afghan wedding. Right, you right. Know? If you yeah. angle it properly. If yeah. you throw it high enough, you could get it on the soundboards, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, that that's the dream. Yeah. That's the dream, but I think it might be a little bit unreasonable. Have one bounce out into mm-hmm. it. You have to start, like, sharing pictures of this room so that people can get an idea of what you're talking about. We did this morning. There's okay, Daniel shared a picture of the of the bagels that are stuck on the top of the yeah, soundproofing. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. I do have a, a plan for those bagels. And for, if you guys remember, two months ago, we threw the coffee mate uh, on top of the <laughs> poison room. Uh-huh. Um, so when we start our new podcast, which will be named some variant of the worst year ever, That's or right. the worst year of our lives, we haven't we haven't quite settled. Bad yet. year, bad year, bad year for everybody. Bad year, uh, <laughs> bad podcast. <laughs> bad. <laughs> Fine, so, fine podcast about a bad, <laughs> bad year for everybody. In January, we should inaugurate the show by taking the, by that point, very, very, very stale bagels off of the soundproofing mm. and taking the very, very, very bad uh, coffee mate off of the top of the poison room and having ourselves some coffee made bagels. Ooh, gross. <laughs> that sounds awful. Let's so, do it. Let's do it. <laughs> terrible bagels to start a terrible well, year. We can at least see what comes out, you know? Yeah. Chew some coffee cream. <laughs> I mean, it was expired the last time we had any. Yeah. How much worse could it get? <laughs> One pump, a portion of a cream. Yeah. <laughs> Curdled cream. Just be One like pump, several. Curdled. One pump, several dusts. Uh, what? Well, that's the Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. Sophie covered her mouth with that. Her reaction is hard to place. No, she, she approves. It. She approves. She gave a thumbs okay. up. What do other podcasts okay. talk about before they start? Well, Cody doesn't like for us to talk about too much because we always feel like. Well, I feel like we've talked for like ten minutes mm-hmm. at this point. We, we might. Have. We have. We, should, we have. We but should, like, yeah. So we normally Three. just talk for. Oh, like, okay. <laughs> we um we say whatever holiday it is, happy whatever, and then we make a couple jokes or whatever about yeah. that, and then we get started. Yeah. What is your book? You know, it yeah, is. It is, is my book. audio book, show. and there's a version of it with none of this, where it's just me reading it. So I feel like they've got options. Yeah, they've yeah. got options. So fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Fuck them. Assholes who donated money generously so Thank that I could much. do work. Pieces of shit. Yeah, piece, theoretical bastards that haven't actually complained, but that I'm imagining. Well, what what are you doing, Sophie? Read the book. Oh, she's telling us to get to it. <laughs> okay, yeah, we might be high. It's it's possible. <laughs> Chapter four: How to build an army. <laughs> Fun times. Mm. Everything you're going to read about in this chapter, or listen about, hear about in this chapter, I wrote here, but I said read. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm reading. Uh, is documented history. I feel the need to emphasize that here at the beginning because the history I'm about to discuss is very much underreported. Most of this is probably not stuff you heard about. Uh, certainly not in a textbook. Uh, and the question of why that is the case is a really good one uh, because the story that I'm going to tell in this chapter is the story of a bloody, vicious, and exceptionally deadly insurgency that, had a few things broken differently, might have plunged the nation into mass violence. As it was, hundreds and hundreds of people were killed, and the killing continues to this day. Okay. That was a weird way to read that last line there. (laughs) Yeah. This story of, or the story of this insurgency starts, as most stories of insurgencies do, with a single guy. Now, this guy's name was Louis Beam. You guys remember talking about Louis Beam a little bit in our border episode? Um is he uh one of the uh he's one of the militiamen that yep, uh Yep, 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 had a border militia. Had all those things to say. KKK guy. Yeah. He had a lot to say. Yeah. A lot to say. 
So like me, Louis Beam was a Texan. He was born in 1946 uh, in Lufkin, Texas. And I had a roommate who was from Lufkin once who used to drunkenly punch out light bulbs, but that's neither here or there. <laughs> um, fun guy. Sam was his hmm. name. Yeah. That's a story I'd like to hear sometime. It's, that's the whole story. Okay. He would get drunk and he would punch light bulbs. He was seven feet tall. Okay. So Lufkin. All right, all right. Short story. Okay. Louis Beam was from Lufkin. Uh, he grew up in the America that modern conservatives still longingly hearken back to. His parents were working class people, and his father served in combat during World War II. That tradition inspired Beam to enlist in the Army at age 19. He had a pregnant wife at this point and every reason to avoid conflict, but Beam sought out a baptism by fire, and he got it. So, uh, when Beam entered the U.S. military, he was entering an organization that for the very first time was racially integrated. Vietnam was the first war where, like, black guys and white guys would fight in mixed units, and black people were allowed to do all the jobs, and yeah. Um, Now, this did not sit well with Beam, because he was a big supporter of George Wallace. You might remember from the last Segregation Mm -hmm. Forever fellow. Yeah. A lot of common, you know, idols and heroes and people that these people... Yeah. gravitate towards yeah it's, they're all connected in at least two or three ways uh, yeah. part of the trouble of putting this together was figuring out like where to stop talking about their connections like with Matt Bracken the guy who wrote the third series of books inspired by the Turner Diaries also a guest on Alex Jones's show right, right. Yeah. yeah there are a lot of these sort of you know, and, yeah and at what point is it are you saying it too much and yeah. it's like taking the time to detract from it yeah yeah, so Louis Beam joins the military, loving segregation and George Wallace, uh, and yeah, he's frustrated uh, by the military that he finds himself in, frustrated at serving alongside black people. Uh, at one point, Beam and several of his most racist comrades hang Confederate flags in their barracks as an act of protest against the civil rights movement. That was the right thing to protest during the Vietnam War. Oh, my God. So that's the guy Beam is. Super psyched about Vietnam, hates black people being able to drink from the same water fountains. Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Bring the War Home by Kathleen Ballou provides good context for the nature of racial strife among U.S. soldiers in Vietnam during the time Beam enlisted. Quote, While white and black soldiers faced combat together, the rear echelon was intensely segregated. One black soldier described Saigon as, just like Mississippi. In Beam's camp at Chu Chi in Vietnam, black and white soldiers frequently exchanged insults, slights, and blows. Beam served in the 25th Aviation Battalion at a moment of escalating racial tensions. As the language of black power circulated between home and battlefront, black soldiers created a culture of Afros and black berets, greeting each other with fist bumps. Some white soldiers in the 25th reported feeling alienated or threatened because of such actions. Klansmen serving as active duty personnel in Vietnam announced plans for cross burnings and spray-painted racial epithets on rear echelon buildings. By 1970, the Marine Corps recorded more than a thousand incidents of racial violence at installations both in Vietnam and back home. Wow, that's actually, I'd never heard that before. That's you fascinating. You never hear that story. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not surprised, but also, mm-hmm. yeah. Back in the States, there were murders and lynchings on military bases. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course there were. I can't stop using this voice of, like, mild interest. You're doing it's great. It's not, not appropriate <laughs> for this. Uh, yeah. Uh, In 1964, four members of the United Clans of America murdered a black Army Reserve lieutenant colonel. Later in the 1960s, the Camp Pendleton Clan chapter reached 200 members in size and carried out a campaign of shootings, firebombings, torture, and harassment of black Marines. Beam did not join the United Clans until after he was discharged from service, but he served in a military where racial violence was common and where membership in extremist groups by uniformed service members was also common. It was not illegal yet. You could openly be a Klansman and serve in the U.S. military at this point. That uh, changes as a result of some of the things that happened in this story. It's a good change. Yep. Positive change. Good good move. (laughs) Maybe soldiers shouldn't have the right to join organizations that urge 
the enslavement of huge chunks of the populace. Well, when you mm. put it like that. Yeah. What's the, it's like 10%? No, it's a quarter of soldiers. It's a quarter of active duty Currently? U.S. soldiers. No, not our members have have met white supremacists at some point during their time service. That's, That's alarming. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's not a quarter of them are right, just right, 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 right. experienced yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's common though. Yes. Yeah. It's that, yeah, that yeah. common. <laughs> yeah. Beam was a helicopter door gunner. He manned a 50 caliber machine gun on a Huey and by his own recollection killed over 50 people. Um, yeah. So he had okay. he had a hardcore job. He saw some hardcore combat. Yeah. Uh, he expressed appreciation for, quote, the joys of killing your enemy. But he also struggled with what would later become known as PTSD. Beam and many others at the time called it post-Vietnam stress syndrome. Because, again, like, this is not something people really had vocabulary right, for. Right, right. Yeah. After coming home from the war, he said this to an undercover reporter at a KKK event. Quote, After I got home from the war, things didn't seem like they were before I went to Vietnam. Everything seemed different. The whole climate of the nation had changed. Before I went over to fight, most of the people seemed behind us soldiers. But when I returned, it seemed the majority of Americans were against us, against the war as a whole. So, he doesn't see that as a good thing. He kind of sees it as like a stab in the back sort right, of situation. Right, right. Yeah. He feels betrayed for, yeah. Yeah. That's never happened to a soldier before who later turned into a fascist revolutionary. Hmm. Louis Beam came home in 1968 and almost immediately joined the KKK. He was racist, certainly, but the primary hatred he developed in Vietnam was an intense disgust with the left and with communism. In the early 1970s, he was involved in a spate of terroristic crimes. A machine gun attack on a Communist Party headquarters in Houston, the bombing of a left-wing radio station. No one died in these attacks, and he managed to avoid charges for either of them. In 1976, he switched to a different section of the KKK, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, led by a little tyke. Named David Duke. Mm. Yeah, D. Duke. Mm. Yeah. So, Duke had grown up, as we stated in the last episode, uh, reading Willis Carto's Western Destiny paper and flirting with Nazism in college, dressing in his SS just uniform. With it. Well, yeah, just a little bit, a little bit of Nazism. Jealous. Yeah. I mean, he, he was wearing his SS uniform as a protest for a guy whose name I have mm. forgotten when he marched in it up and down his school's free speech alley. But yeah. he also yeah, he had an SS uniform. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Duke's Knights of the Ku Klux Klan became the most prominent Klan group of the 1970s, due in large part to Duke's decision to wed the organization more closely with outright Nazism and help organize Klan border patrols to stop migrants. Racial paranoia and fear of communism led to a vast surge in Klan ranks throughout the 1970s. What's up, Cody? Just racial paranoia. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just mm-hmm. the yeah. yeah, this is never, this has never <laughs> happened again, thankfully. Go on. Go on. In 1975, there were an estimated 6,500 Klansmen nationwide. By 1979, that number had increased to 10,000, plus another 75,000 Klan sympathizers. So, for a while, Duke seemed like a pretty good pick for someone who might manage to take on the role of being the next George Lincoln Rockwell. He was charismatic and good at drawing media attention. In 1978 and 79, he became a constant figure on American talk shows who would have him on because they thought he was funny. In 1975, Willis Carto covered Duke's campaign for the Louisiana Senate in an issue of his weekly magazine, The National Spotlight. Carto wrote, He sees the Klan not as a terrorist organization, but as a political movement with ideological leadership. Now, yeah. Cool. Legitimizing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Duke only won about one-third of the vote, but that was still seen, rightly, as a huge improvement in the political fortunes of the fascist right. Gallup reported that the number of Americans with favorable opinions of the Klan nearly doubled from 1965 to 1975. Duke, then, represented the best hopes of mainstreamers in the late 1970s. Hmm. 
Beam and a number of other Klansmen would wind up on the side of the Vanguardists. One of these other men was Bill Wilkinson, a former mid-level leader in Duke's clan who created his own group, the Invisible Empire, in the late 1970s. Bill was noteworthy for his sheer willingness to make violent threats, saying in an interview, I'm the only clan member who believes in having guns around. These guns aren't for shooting rabbits, they're for wasting people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good cool, <laughs> cool a company. To... <laughs> wonderful thing to just publicly say. Today he'd say the quiet it... part real loud. <laughs> Very loud. If he were saying that today, he would be posting it on Facebook, and there would be a minion in the background. It would be one of those little image mm. messages. Cute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe a poop be. emoji. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 1979, Wilkinson's Klan protested a march by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Decatur, Alabama. They showed up with clubs and wound up fighting with both the marchers and the local police. Gunfire ensued, and three people were wounded. No one was killed, but that would change in November 1980, when Wilkinson's Klan marched against communist demonstrators in Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, have you heard of Greensboro, North Carolina? I have. Yeah, it's a, a long story that we won't be getting into in enough detail in this because we just have to so much to cover. But uh, there's a clash between the communists and between the Klansmen, and the Klansmen open fire, killing five of the protesters. And there's stories of them like specifically targeting black protesters and like not shooting white ones. It's 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 a it's a murder. Uh, they yeah. they murder five people. Now, later investigation reveals that police were complicit in the massacre, actively directing officers away from the site of the protest in order to ensure that no law enforcement was present when the Klan attacked, aside from an FBI agent who was embedded with the Klan attackers, but did nothing to stop them from firing into the crowd. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Go FBI. Why would you you do anything in that situation? It's one of those surprising, not surprising things. Yeah. Now, none of the killers in Greensboro were found guilty in a subsequent criminal trial. They argued that opening fire into the crowd, often from the back of moving vehicles, had been justified because of the threat to their lives posed by the communists. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because communists are inherently dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. There's one thing Mm. we know about communists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love these feelings (laughs) that that all these people are gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess legal facts do care about their feelings. (laughs) I wish, like, it'd be cool if, like, someone who embodies a lot of these things uh, became the leader of the country. That would probably end well. <laughs> that'd be that'd be interesting to watch. Interesting to watch. Like a guy, and yeah, if you like got a lot of Now, let's then, talk yeah. about real history rather than your nonsense fantasizing, Cody. Okay. Just what happened, not crazy theories about the future. Yeah, cut it out, Cody. The Sorry, I'm high. Future. I was just like, what if, like, all right. <laughs> So, Greensboro was a huge moment for the Klan, and it was seen as many within the American fascist movement as nothing less than the first shots fired in a war to take back their country from communist infiltrators. The Greensboro Klansmen went on to become heroes in the movement, giving speaking tours and acting as living billboards for the cause. So that's cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. It's all pretty cool. And this brings us back to Louis Beam. While he was not present at Greensboro, Beam kept extremely busy in the late 1970s. In 1979, Deng Xiaoping, the leader of China at the time, visited the United States. When he arrived in Texas, Beam attempted to spray him with red paint in the lobby of his hotel. He was punched out by a security guard. Later variations of the story would mark it down as an assassination attempt against the Chinese statesman, but the reality seems to have been much dumber than that. He was just trying to cover him with paint. Paint him red because he's communist. That's such a, like, cheap attempt. That's such a, like, dumb... It was the 70s. Okay, that's true. Everything was a little more primitive except for Indiana Jones movies. Okay, that's fair. (laughs) Great time for, yeah. 
<laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of Indiana Jones movies, you know what else is perfect art? What? Oh, the products like and services, commercials and stuff. Yes, yeah, that I represent the show. And unlike Indiana Jones, it was not made with the female protagonist being initially envisioned as a fourteen-year-old. Mm. I shouldn't talk about that right before. Right before going <laughs> <laughs> Welp. Products. <laughs> After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if people have learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You think, what's the catch? But there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/behind. That's mintmobile.com/behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile dot com slash behind additional taxes fees and restrictions apply see mint mobile for details there's plenty to celebrate in march and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free you deserve a moment to yourself every single day and a delicious bite of a keebler sandies can give you that comforting pause Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. We're back! Sophie just opened an enormous bag of chips, made a tremendous amount of noise. Yeah, it was so loud. Really, really unprofessional, Sophie. Yeah, I can't believe you, Sophie. Excited to see what I throw next. Speaking of professional. Mm -hmm. We're back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Robert lecturing about professionalism is... I'm a a consummate professional, You are, you are. Thank you. Hasn't thrown anything yet. Yeah, except for those those bagels, those bagels really, I started. Yeah, I mean, yeah those are the, like yeah. throwing bagels. You got those throw are the bagels. throwing bagels, and they brought me no joy now because I've just moved past that, mm-hmm. but not past throwing. <laughs> Never moved past throwing. So, uh, when we last left Louis Beam, he had tried to literally paint uh, Deng Xiaoping red uh, and gotten the shit punched out of him by a security guard. Great. Okay. Yeah, that's that right. will be the most emotionally satisfying beat of this story. Oh, the rest is just frustrating. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. okay. 
So, uh, right around the same time he was attacking Deng Xiaoping with paint, uh, Louis Beam began to operate a paramilitary training camp in Oklahoma called Camp Polar. White supremacists would gather there to train in combined arms techniques and prepare to fight in a civil war against communists, blacks, and Jews. Attendees with military experience were encouraged to wear their medals and insignia over their clan fatigues. So, uh, I found an interesting article from UPI uh, in November of 1980 that covered this camp and a little kerfuffle it ran into legally when they kind of uh, brought a bunch of Boy Scouts over. Quote, a Ku Klux Klansman who says he is prepared to do battle against communists and homosexuals instructs explorer scouts and civil air patrol cadets in guerrilla warfare techniques at a paramilitary camp, a newspaper reports. The post, which has not been fully chartered by the Boy Scouts of America, mm-hmm. is run by Robert John Sassente of Deer Park, who denies he is a Klan member, and Louis Beam of Pasadena, the Grand Dragon of the Texas KKK. <laughs> I am proud to be a member of the Klan, said Bogart, a former Marine from Laporte, Texas, who said he had been a member for two years. There are only two groups I'll do battle with. Communist and homosexuals. That's the basic reason I joined the Klan. Wow. Yeah. Wow, yeah. what a statement. What a statement. <laughs> what a man. The Grand Dragon. Mm-hmm. What a... Just a simple dark. paramilitary just... training camp teaching Boy Scouts. It's not a Klan camp. It's just run by the Grand Dragon of the Klan and another random guy. Unbelievable. <laughs> just a guy. <laughs> The article notes that the concerns about the camp were initially sparked when parents of Explorer Scouts and Civil Air Patrol cadets complained that their 15 to 19 year old sons were learning guerrilla warfare techniques and racial slurs from leaders of the camp. Oh, wow. Which would be a thing to complain yeah, about. Yeah, fair concerns. Fair concerns. Yeah. As a parent, I usually think parents are being too sensitive about stuff like this. Sure. But not stuff yeah. like not this. Not in this situation, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. Soft these days, but. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kids are still too soft, but maybe it's bad for the KKK to teach them how to fight a mm. war. I don't know. Oh, but what about the other guy? <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. The other guy's not with the KKK. Exactly. So I guess that's fine. Yeah, you got both sides. <laughs> that's why all of, us, all of us kids are pussies, because we didn't grow up mm-hmm. been talking like... <laughs> you get it. Yeah. We're all... <laughs> I just gave up. <laughs> yeah, how can you? What do you? Yeah, so, if there's anything to edit out, it's that. No, 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 no. Cinema verite, Katie. Mm. That's what this is. Oof. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the parents complained. Uh, Civil Air Patrol Major Paul Renfro, who investigated the camp, stated to the newspaper, "Quote: There was nothing Boy Scout about it. They were on maneuvers. They were firing, unloading, using live ammunition, and the parents were very upset because they were told nothing about this. These guys misled the scouts." So Camp Puller uh, was, you know, uh, shut down after this as a result Good. of the controversy, but not forever. Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, Camp Puller uh, came together, again, during a very different time in the U.S. So the fact that a lot of these guys were active duty U.S. service members was not a problem. Uh, this was also, consequently, a time in which weapon theft and the smuggling of military-grade armaments like rocket launchers to civilian militias and terrorist groups was incredibly common. What? So, might be t- tied together, those two things? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, in 2019, as I write this episode, the state of Oregon is currently ground zero for a resurgent militia movement. You can trace the start of our most recent band of troubles back to the standoff at the Bundy Compound in Bunkerville, Nevada, which led to the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. A number of the men who were involved in that are currently helping state-level Republican legislators hide in Idaho, or were when I wrote this. They've since <laughs> come back after getting their way uh, right, right. because they yeah. threatened people with violence. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So even from that brief summary, it should be obvious how ju- <laughs> uh, groups like this work. They don't have the numbers to enforce their will democratically, but they do have guns, which they use to threaten people with horrible violence to get what they want. They're gambling on the fact that nobody else will deploy violence against them, yeah, because that's... for some weird reason, those people would be seen as having started it. Yeah. yeah. So we're all, t- yes, what it all is. Yeah. It's that angry, 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 yeah. It's, it, it's... anti-democratic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's fine for them. Now, if they were Puerto Rican, would not be okay. No, which no. is why the Puerto Rican group that attacked the capital with guns got wiped out and uh, I think executed. Uh, it was bad hmm. for them, but uh, cool to do it. Yeah, if you're yeah. You have a 3% Wait, when was patch. that? It was like in the seventies or eighties. There was like a, an attack by a Puerto really? Rican terrorist group. I should have looked this up before bringing it up, but yeah. No, we'll circle around yeah, some other time. We'll circle around. It's they, they got heavily yeah. punished. Yeah, uh, but but not. Not so much this. Some of them get pardoned. <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, boy. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when these people are not confronted and forced to face consequences for breaking the law, they continue to push, which is what we've seen with all the guys involved in the Bundy standoffs who have now continued to uh, push local laws and stuff uh, in Oregon. And it's what we saw with Lewis Beam in the early 1980s. He and his fellow Klansmen had not been punished for Greensboro. They hadn't really been punished for Camp Fuller. And so... Beam started looking for more opportunities for he and his men to enforce their own rule of law in places where they felt the government wouldn't have the guts to stand up to them. Greensboro, obviously, had been proof positive of how well this would work. So Beam looked south from Camp Puller, and he saw the town of Seadrift, Texas. He thought it was another place where he and his comrades might be able to exercise their will and force the cowardly state to flee before them. Now, Seadrift was a crabbing town with a population of about 1,000 people. Life there had been recently disrupted by the arrival of roughly 100 Vietnamese refugees. Overnight, Seadrift went from a very homogenous culture, where everybody spoke English, to a town where only 90% of the people spoke English. Oh, no. I know. Oh, that's going to cause some problems. It's bad for them. Yeah, it's white genocide is what that sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that on its own might not have been an issue, but the Vietnamese families proved to be extremely good at fishing for crabs. They worked together in large collaborative family fishing groups and worked more efficiently and effectively than the native crabbers of Seadrift. <laughs> That's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. <laughs> now, you'd think capitalism being capitalism, they'd just be rewarded Ooh, for this. Man. Yeah. Nope. (laughs) In August 1979, there was a dispute over the distance between two sets of crab traps. A fight ensued, and a white crabber was shot dead. Two Vietnamese crabbers were acquitted for the shooting on self-defense grounds. So, so far? Yeah. What happened next will sound very familiar. Uh, Rumors began to percolate that the Vietnamese refugees were being funded on sketchy government welfare checks. That they'd smuggled gold out of Vietnam before they'd fled. Several of the men in Seadrift were Vietnam veterans, and the scars of war hardened their hatred to their new neighbors, which was ironic, because the Vietnamese refugees who settled in Seadrift did so because they'd sided with the Americans and worked with the South Vietnamese government and had had to flee the country mm. when the communists took over. Sure, sure, so they had sure, sure. way more cost to hate communism than any of the white <laughs> yeah. crowders who oh were angry at them. <laughs> really ironic. Uh, you like unfortunate. Yeah. communicate just... <laughs> well. Yeah, this is another thing that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody know. talks about Seadrift yeah. anymore. Seadrift, good name for a crab in town. Is a good name for a it crab is, in town. Absolutely. It is, uh, absolutely. Yeah, you could see like the movie starting. I'm imagining, yeah. what's his name? The guy who played Sheriff Brody in Jaws. Oh, how much? Oh. He was in Sequest too. He's an incredible actor. <laughs> well, now you're just... Roy Scheider. I'm imagining okay. Roy Scheider okay. as the sheriff of this little town. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I can accept that. I wish Roy Scheider was still alive. So they can make a make a sequest so make too. Se- 
He wants the no. Sea Draft movie. What? You, for this movie. Yeah, I want a Sea Drift movie. Yeah, yeah not Sea Quest. We got enough Sea Quest. I mean, you have a Sea Quest cameo in a movie called Sea Drift. Yeah, you, you know about what? You know what? We we could have, we could have, we could have the 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 big boat and Sea Quest come mm-hmm. save the day. Yeah, with that dolphin that's smart. spoilers, but Sea <laughs> Quest shows up, saves the day. Yeah. That is not what happens. So, uh, in 1980, the first of these new immigrants to Sea Drift earned their American citizenship. This provoked a paroxysm of rage. Three Vietnamese boats and one mobile home were firebombed. There were beatings. One man pulled a gun on a Vietnamese fisherman walking across a deck and shot him in the leg. Louis Beam and his clan waded into this mess with glee and consummate expertise. They started putting out reams of propaganda, newsletters, and magazines calling the Vietnamese refugees boat people and accusing them of being riddled with tuberculosis and malaria. Clan propaganda also sought to stoke fears that the new immigrants would sexually assault local white women. Yeah. Stoke fears. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The clan even named their activities in Sea Drift Operation Hemline, a reference to the modest, decent white women they were supposedly protecting. In one interview with a reporter, a clansman in Sea Drift said, Galveston Bay is just like a fine woman. If you rape her, she's never good anymore. The clan. Uh, this is awful. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> also, how do you rape a bay? I yeah. I mean, actually, Charles Koch could answer that question uh, about yes. this bay because he's largely responsible oh, yeah. for ruining Galveston Bay. <laughs> he's had his way with Galveston Bay. Do you have bay. a quote? He's had his way with Galveston Bay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's no good anymore. <laughs> that old sea song. Do you know the way to Galveston Bay? No. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because we're, you know what? I'm angry that we got high before oh God. this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I know. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You're going to throw it towards I'm me. I'm going to throw the box of Pringles. Wait, wait. I, you know what? I got to yeah, do this the right, yeah, you gotta... this the right way. I knew that would happen. That was a real problem. It rained the Pringles. It rained Pringles everywhere. Yeah, I think <laughs> it was perfect. fell out of the box. It's exactly what you wanted. Sophie's it thrilled. went everywhere. Sophie's, Sophie's thrilled. Very We're proud. all happy about it. We're all happy about how that worked. <laughs> to be clear, they're little, they're little uh, containers of Pringles. There aren't like individual <laughs> Pringle chips everywhere. No, that would, oh, cause, yeah. that would cause mice. You know what I love is how <laughs> yeah. satisfying that is on a podcast. Mmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might have. Yeah, you have to take pictures of it. We have to take pictures of it. She's shaking her head no. Okay. She's ashamed, as she should be. Yeah. Anyway, discouraging it. On January tenth, nineteen eighty-one, the Vietnamese-owned shrimping vessel Trudy B was lit on fire in its dock. The next night, another Vietnamese shrimping boat was burned. Local police reported seeing four white males in clan robes starting the fires. What? Wait. <laughs> was there was there a fifth person? Nope. Nope. Oh. oh. All right, then, yeah, it's probably the clan. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be a basketball team if it were five? Uh, if there was a fifth person who wasn't in the clan, maybe. Uh, maybe yeah. the Texas Longhorns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, this would prove to be but a prelude. In February of 1981, the Texas KKK held a massive Klan rally in Santa Fe, Texas, drawing three or four hundred armed paramilitaries. As master of ceremonies, Louis Beam burned a small rowboat named the USS Viet Cong. He told the gathered clansmen to pay attention to his technique because he was illustrating the proper way to destroy a boat by arson. Sure. This was illegal because reasons. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He decried the theft of the job security of real Americans by immigrants and promised that if the Vietnamese fishermen in Sea Drift didn't flee by May 15th, the KKK would, quote, take matters into its own hands. 
In March, rogue clansmen started carrying out armed boat patrols of the Galveston Bay, wielding assault rifles and displaying an effigy of a lynched Vietnamese person on the rigging of their boat. Several Vietnamese families living on the water fled their homes after close passes by the clan's armed patrol. There are pictures you can find of these patrols, and they are quite shocking Did- to behold. Wow. <laughs> Super fucked up. Yes. This is crazy. <laughs> it's fucking uh, wild. Uh, yeah. This is a revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the Klan taking over law enforcement of a town yeah. to enforce their laws. It's so terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In one like, of these, yeah. That this just happened. Yeah, this just happened. In one of these patrol pictures, we see seven men and one young woman in a mix of Klan robes and military fatigues. They wear w- rifles and stare out with surly expressions into the sea. Most of them are overweight, and on an individual basis, they look distinctly observed in their costumes and military gear. But mm-hmm. there is nothing funny about the broader image of a squadron of armed and uniformed racists enforcing their own laws on American soil. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like if you like, just make fun of these people for appearing absurd, uh, it allows them to do a lot of dangerous shit without getting taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. What if one of them was like the leader <laughs> of the country? <laughs> Him in a military uniform? Like, he'll do it eventually. It's yeah, going to look so eventually. silly. No. Yeah, and it's going to spawn like a bunch of jokey hashtags yeah. while he uh, uh, does the oh, thing really that does bad. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. I hope that never happens. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. I'll call him Trump, and that'll deal with the problem. Sure, that'll <laughs> that'll show him. So. Uh, Camp Polar had closed briefly after their controversy with uh, recruiting Boy Scouts, but it reopened in April of 1981, which was just fine for some reason. Dozens of uniformed militiamen <laughs> began showing up again, firing their guns past the homes of several black families who lived nearby on their own land. The local sheriff complained that he could do nothing because, quote, no one has filed a complaint. They won't file complaints because they fear reprisal or potential reprisal. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That guy qualifies as the good guy in this story. Oh, my god! Because the mayor of Kima, a small neighboring town to Seadrift where many of the threatened Vietnamese fishermen lived, was less sympathetic. He admitted that the sight of clansmen in robes was disturbing, but declared, I don't have any reason to believe the Vietnamese are not safe. Oh, my God. <laughs> the boats being lit on fire might so, be might be one. The guy that got shot in the leg. Frustrating. The lynched effigy of a Vietnamese fisherman? No, this wasn't that long ago. <laughs> no, this is like Cheers is on the air, I yeah. think. <laughs> Unbelievable. Dr. Frazier Crane had yeah. taken to the screen, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe maybe not by eight, 1981. Was it 82? Oh, oh. The, Sophie's yeah. holding up two yeah. fingers because That's, it's time for it. It Will you look up when Cheers started? Yeah. So that it I was can very well timed when she did that. Yeah, so. because if if Fraser Crane was around 1980, yeah, 1982. <laughs> so Fraser Crane should have said something yeah. about this. Yeah, it was at least in a cold open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in a cold open. Like, doesn't have to. A the whole Frasier. episode doesn't have to be about it. But. Okay, well, we're gonna pull the ads now because I can't keep up with uh with all these Cheers gags. So. Products. <laughs> There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 
deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We're back. <laughs> we are. We're not talking about Cheers anymore because I don't know enough about Cheers to joke about it. <laughs> All right. Yes. Moving on. Moving on. Diane. Oh, Diane. Stop saying oh, the name of Cheers Rebecca, people. you know. Rebecca. I only yeah. know them for their cameos on Frasier, the show I did watch. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then Lilith. Lilith, of course. Uh, yeah. Lilith. Yeah, she was in both. Yeah. Turns out I know a lot about Cheers mm, characters. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I I'm just sorry. know what I learned about them in Frasier. Anyway. <laughs> the book. The book. <laughs> the book. The related. Book. Related to the, yeah. yeah. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, help did not come from the local government or from or law. Frasier. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or Frasier. Uh, or law enforcement. Instead, it came from the Southern Poverty Law Center, who helped a group of Vietnamese fishermen file suit against the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Beam showed up to court wearing his Klan robes, carrying a gun, and claimed, I'm only charged with loving this country. Ugh. Again, he wore a gun to his own trial and at one point challenged Morris Dees, the lawyer for the SPLC, to a duel to the death. Yeah, he did. <laughs> wow, this guy. Did, did he accept? No. No, mm. he did not. Mm. <laughs> Eventually, however, the sunlight of the court case acted as a moderate disinfectant, or at least the first sign of real resistance finally checked the Klan's escalating use of force. During the trial, video was played of Beam training militiamen at Camp Polar. In that segment, he was seen advising his soldiers on how to conduct themselves in battle. He said, quote, Utterly destroy everybody. Maximum damage. Maximum violence in the shortest period of time. They can do only one thing. Die. This did not go over well in court. Finally, on December 3rd, 1989, uh, under an avalanche of death threats, the judge issued a court order demanding an end to the Klan harassment. Beam's paramilitary group, Camp Puller, and four other far-right militia training camps in the area were ordered shut down. The Vietnamese fishermen had won, but Louis Beam was far from defeated. Not 1989, sorry, 1981. Hmm? It's probably madder now. Yeah, much madder. Yeah, it probably has, like, other plans now. He did start making other plans. Oh. He continued to write... Oh, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spoilers, it ends with a federal building exploding, actually. Oh, oh. So Beam continued to write speeches, newsletters, and articles in various far-right journals of record, culminating in his 1983 book, Essays of a Klansman. 
In this book, he encouraged his fellow fascist Vietnam veterans to bring the war on home to the United States. While the legal prescriptions against Beam and his fellow Klansmen after Seadrift were more effective than the complete exoneration they'd received after Greensboro, it effectively did nothing to actually stop Klan organizing. While the fascist right receded ever so slightly in the first years after Reagan's election, by 1984, America's Nazis had realized that the president was not going to be the quasi-nationalist leader they'd hoped he might be. Oh, no. Yeah. Wait, how, what are they going to do? Well, nothing good, Cody. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So the white power movement began to grow again after Reagan failed to ban abortion and reinstate segregation. Uh, I'm going to quote again from the book Bring the War Home. Quote, Scholars and watchdog groups who have attempted to calculate the numbers of people in the movement's varied branches, including, for instance, Klansmen and neo-Nazis, who are often counted separately, estimate that there were about 25,000 hardcore members in the 1980s. An additional 150 to 175,000 people bought white power literature, sent contributions to groups, or attended rallies or other events, signifying a larger, although less formal, level of membership. Another 450,000 did not themselves participate or purchase materials, but did read the literature. The John Birch Society, in contrast, reached only 100,000 members at its 1965 peak that's, a lot that's of cool that's a lot of people so um we focus mostly on louis beam and the kkk and neo-nazis during this chapter but it's important to know that an awful lot of other fascist groups were active organizing and growing during this period militant right-wing organizations popped up constantly throughout the 1980s one important group was the posse comitatus in brief the posses were a series of militant anti-government cells they were believers of christian identity theology and these true israelites also subscribed to a conspiratorial interpretation of american history in which all government above the county level was fundamentally illegitimate posse believers felt the federal reserve and the irs were part of a jewish plot to wipe out the white man mm -hmm. in their view the county sheriff was the only legitimate power in the land and if he did not act in accordance with the wishes of the county, he should be hung by the neck until dead. Okay. Yeah. Slightly yeah. different flavor, but... Mm -hmm. I follow. Yeah. You, know, you see where this is going? Yeah, I do. So, as a big general rule, posse members were big fans of hanging. Modern-day sovereign citizens descend from the posse comitatus. You can draw a direct line between them and many modern militia movements, including the constitutional sheriffs who supported the Bundy clan's Malher occupation. In fact, when they got stopped and that guy Lavoie Finnegan got killed, it was because the Bundy brothers were driving with some of their friends to go meet a constitutional sheriff. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. Appropriately enough, the first posse comatatus cell was formed in Portland, Oregon, back in 1969. It's so weird. But posse beliefs did not generate national awareness until 1983, when a guy named Gordon Call got into a series of gunfights with authorities. Call had declared himself a tax protester in 1967, writing the IRS to let them know he would no longer pay taxes to the, quote, synagogue of Satan. He was a big old Christian identity fan. Here we go. Sure. Yes. Yeah. He was arrested in 1976, but got out on parole and went to ground near Medina, North Dakota. A warrant was officially issued for his arrest over parole violations, which prompted U.S. Marshals to try and arrest him while he and his family were driving home from a posse-related meeting in February 1983. A shootout ensued, and Call and his family killed two federal marshals. Okay. She. Mm-hmm. Gordon went on the run after that and was finally brought down in June after a vicious gunfight that left an Arkansas sheriff and Call himself dead. By the time Call died, the posse movement had metastasized into a series of townships filled with white supremacist Christian identity believers who considered the federal government illegitimate, were heavily armed, fiercely independent, and more than willing to kill for their beliefs. 
This was part of a broader trend on the far right in the 1980s to create autonomous enclaves for their ideology in isolated rural communities. Another such group was the Aryan Nations, a neo-Nazi organization centered around a compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho. On paper, the nations were officially a Christian identity church, led by the self-proclaimed Reverend Richard Butler. In the early 1980s, Butler's group began to reach out to incarcerated white Americans, eventually leading to the formation of the Aryan Brotherhood, a Christian identity prison gang that remains influential today. That's where that comes from. Well, that was a concise little Mm -hmm. Mm. rundown of that. Did you know that Aryan Mm. Brotherhood were Christian identity believers? Mm. I didn't either. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Neither no, did I no, no, no. until I started researching yeah. this stuff. Yeah, Another Christian identity compound was, and still is today, Elohim City in Oklahoma. By the early 1980s, Elohim was a fully self-sufficient community with its own sawmill, crops, and weapons ranges on 400 sprawling acres. Elohim's operations were funded by a transcontinental trucking company and construction business operated from the compound. The denizens of Elohim considered American society to be decadent and sinful beyond salvation, and they homeschooled their children and stockpiled weapons in anticipation of societal collapse. Yes, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to do all of that without the religion. Can we? Can can I? Can can I just stockpile guns on a compound? I mean, probably. I, I think yeah. that you can. That's yeah. the dream. It seems, seems like you can. Anyway, yeah. donate to my GoFundMe. <laughs> <laughs> Buy Robert a compound. Oh, so you'll stock it yourself with guns. Yeah, 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 yeah. Guns. Maybe a couple of illegally bought rocket launchers. Okay. Mm. Chickens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to have. Police bearcat. Yeah. Yeah. Pig farm. For mm-hmm. bodies. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I bet it would be illegal for me to do. You said <laughs> illegally describing a few oh, of the things. You know what? I did. Yeah. I did. Well, well. I don't really want to come to that place. <laughs> oh, come on. It'll be fine. It was fine with these people. It was fine with these people. <laughs> yeah, they got to do it. But for how long? They're still doing it. All right, man. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, keep telling the story. There were numerous other far-right groups doing similar things around the country in the 1980s. Most of them fell either into the mold of Elohim City, urging total separation from society, or the Aryan Nations, attempting to build a white insurgency against the Zionist-occupied government. These disparate groups were tied together loosely by Christian identity beliefs and recruited heavily from the nascent prepping movement that started to crop up in the 1980s. In Blood and Politics, Leonard Zeskin notes, quote, For William Pierce, survivalist events became an opportunity for nationalists interested in self-preservation rather than the advancement of the white race. So, yeah. interesting. Mm. They start reaching out to these guys, survivalist community mm. around the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Pierce's goal became to infuse white racial consciousness into the survival movement and thus turn it from a disconnected community of armed loners into something he could use to bring about the revolution he desired. Independently, Klansman Louis Beam spent the early 1980s on a similar goal, spreading white racial consciousness and a desire for revolution to disaffected white Vietnam veterans. In 1982, he wrote, America's political leaders, bankers, church ministers, newsmen, sports stars, and hippies called us baby killers and threw chicken blood on some of us when we returned home. You're damn Damn right, I'm mad. I've had enough. I want these same traitors to face their enemy now. The American fighting man they betrayed. All three million of us. This is the tact that Louis Beam takes. Yeah, okay. Beam wrote articles in which he warned of a coming mass gun confiscation. He told his readers to arm up and hide their weapons and hope that the future might bring headlines like, and this is Louis Beam's, like, what, what he wrote as his, his hoped four headlines. Millions of formerly peaceful law-abiding citizens up in arms. Vigilantes of one in two persons take law into own hands. Politician cut in two by shotgun blast as he steps from car. Federal judge killed by bomb blast as he starts car. Judge found dead, hands tied behind back, throat cut. U.S. senator found hanging from limb of tree on river. Uh. 
cool. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> cool and good. Mm-hmm. Cool and good. In June of 2019, Walter Lubke, a Christian Democratic Union politician in Germany, was shot dead by a neo-Nazi terrorist. Lubke was hated for his support of Angela Merkel's open-door refugee policy. His killer had ties to larger organizations of German Nazi radicals, which included members of law enforcement. On an unrelated note, mm. several weeks after this, members of a neo-Nazi ring within German law enforcement were found with a massive stockpile of arms and a list of politicians they planned to murder. Cool. Oh. Wait, what year was this one? Now. Now, okay. This happened like weeks ago. This one was, oh, oh, yeah. yes. This is the one I know about. Yeah, this is the one that we all heard about. So that's cool. So yeah, kind of sounds like, like the headlines being wrote. Yeah. It just... Okay. I didn't hear about that. So when you hear about it like this, it, everything, it's like, there's so all these stories, mm-hmm. and at first you think, well, that was so long oh, ago. Oh, it's just a crazy and, thing that like, happened. It's a crazy yeah. thing that happens, and you're like, this is fucking still happening. It's all the same and echo. Yeah. you're talking, yeah. I start to think, like, oh, maybe, well, I don't know, what's the, per- do you know what the percentage of racist cops is now versus, like... Is that the 10%? No, what am no, I thinking no. Of? I mean, it's got to be more than 10%. Sure. But like versus in comparison to later. I like I like to think that like this all happened so long ago and that things are getting better. Like there's a smaller percentage of people that are this terrible, but mm-hmm. it's it's not true. It's what definitely getting, not true. Is what I'm getting at is like right. what my thought process has been this honestly this whole episode. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. And like the like the roles that they those people gravitate towards. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we're still we're interrupting a bunch. Mm. No, that's your job. <laughs> so like many white nationalists in the nineteen eighties. Hey Robert. What? Go on. <laughs> Beam expressed a growing dissatisfaction with the Republican Party and American conservatives in general. He damned compromise and wrote that his readers should take up the sword, adding, The sword need not be literal, although many of us would enjoy righteous, fatis- righteous satisfaction from actually lopping off heads of the enemy. A sword in the year of our Lord 1981 can be an M16, three sticks of dynamite taped together, a 12-gauge, a can of gas, or whatever is suitable to carry out any commission of the Lord that has been entrusted to you. Cool that this is legal to write. Yeah. Unbelievable. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> in 1983, Lewis Beam published an essay in the Interclan newsletter titled Leaderless Resistance. This is where that term comes from. In the essay, he argued that the top-down organization of traditional fascist groups, like his own clan, Rockwell's Nazi Party, and its successor, William Pierce's National Alliance, were fundamentally vulnerable to infiltration from law enforcement. This was backed up by the well-known fact that Rockwell's marches had often been half-composed of federal informants. It was also backed up by the disastrous 1981 attempt by several American clansmen to conquer the island of Dominica. You guys hear about that one? No. (laughs) Yeah, this is quite a tale. Dominica is a small island nation near Venezuela. An assortment of neo-Nazi commandos, including a Klan leader named Don Black, who'd previously been the driver of George Lincoln Rockwell's hate bus, had gathered enough weaponry that they believed they could deploy enough force to overthrow the prime minister of that country and install their own government. Then they could use Dominica as a base of operations and as a funding engine to support an insurgency in the U.S. Now, I should note that a lot of those guys also just wanted to make money by setting up casinos and stuff. So there was a mix of people who just wanted money and Nazi mercenaries. Yeah, and that's uh, the idea, right? mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Yeah, yeah, intersectionality. It's win-win right there. The whole thing fell apart before uh, any of these guys could set sail. FBI agents arrested 10 Nazi commandos in New Orleans on a rented boat filled with guns, dynamite, bullets, and Confederate and Nazi flags. Don Black. That's good. The best things to be with those. (laughs) Great things to have in there. Just cover all your bases. Yeah. Don Black and several of these other guys spent time in prison, uh, and when Black got out, he went on to found the neo-Nazi website Stormfront. 
Okay. Yeah, that's where that there guy comes go. from. He's actually a pretty minor part of the well, not minor. He, he just wasn't a huge part of the Dominica thing. He's just yeah. kind of a kind of a guy there. He was just there. <laughs> he was just one of the guys. Yeah, yeah I mean, that alone, guys. Not, yeah. that alone is a big deal. But so after Dominica, fascist thinkers like Beam were eager to find a new way to organize that wouldn't just get them caught by the FBI. Yeah, yeah. As he noted in the leaderless resistance, an infiltrator can destroy anything which is beneath him in the pyramid of organization. In order to counter this, Beam suggested white supremacists adopt a cell type organization similar to those used by communist insurgencies. To quote Leonard Zeskin's Blood and Politics, small groups of people worked together but were known to only one another. Other small groups worked independently, and the participants of one cell remained unknown to the personnel of another. Thus, an enemy infiltrator could possibly betray one cell but couldn't break up the entire underground. While this cell structure was an improvement over the traditional pyramid, Beam decided it also had weaknesses. The problem was it required a central command to give directions to all the cells, and their new vision of vanguardism did not support one single leadership. Beam proposed, instead, a structure of cells like the communists, each operating independently of the others, but without a headquarters. Sounds mm. like uh, terrorism. <laughs> yes, it does. Mm. Now, this put Beam in direct opposition to William Pierce, his National Alliance, and the idealized neo-Nazi insurgency he'd imagined in the Turner Diaries. The order had included a strong central structure, directing a series of semi-independent cells and wielding them as weapons towards the greater goal of disrupting society and rendering it ungovernable. Pierce and Beam and their separate camps were at loggerheads, but in 1983, a man came along with the vision to synthesize their dueling theories into one violent whole. Good, oh. You excited about <laughs> All right, okay. Robert J. Matthews was born in Marfa, Texas, on January 16th, 1953. He joined the John Birch Society at age 11. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Ooh, boy. That is, yeah. that is early. <laughs> that is yeah. real early. Wow. Yeah. In 1971, he was on his way to enlist at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, when he heard a radio report on the prosecution of Lieutenant Bill Cowley, the American officer who presided over the murder of hundreds of Vietnamese civilians at Mai Lai. Matthews obviously thought the killing of women and children was eminently justified in the fight against communism. He decided not to join an army that wouldn't let him kill children with impunity. Uh. <laughs> we all have to have values, you know? Yeah, values are critical. Yeah. Like, I will not stand for this. Mm-hmm. That's true, I didn't think of that. I was all fired up to go to Vietnam until I learned that my army prosecutes people Uh, for war crimes. (laughs) Uh, No, thank you. No, thank you. I've changed my mind about this guy. Good news is he did still find a war to fight. Oh, good. Yeah, I Mm. could see your worry written on your face, Katie. It was his destiny. It was his destiny. Matthews first found himself drawn to violent extremism as part of the tax protest movement. He formed an anti-communist militia called the Sons of Liberty and did time for tax fraud in the early 1970s. Through his involvement with the survivalist movement, Matthews was gradually drawn into the cause of white nationalism. He moved what? to Yeah, what? It's shocking. Go on. Right. He moved to Medellin Falls, Washington in the mid-1970s, and in 1980, he joined William Pierce's National Alliance. Matthews fell in love with the Turner Diaries and the vision of a possible white revolution it provided. His earliest on-the-ground activism involved a series of childish fistfights with anti-fascist protesters. During a Nazi rally in Spokane, uh, in a Spokane public park, he single-handedly fended off several anti-fascists and earned a place in Richard Butler's inner circle. And so Matthews was on the Aryan Nation compound in Idaho in July 1983 for the yearly Congress of White Power Leaders. On that fine summer day, 300 wannabe Aryan revolutionaries sat down to plan the future of their movement. Louis Beam and another fascist thinker, Robert Miles, seemed to have dominated the discussion. 
There are no minutes taken for such meetings, since what was being planned at the Congress was the violent insurgent overthrow of the U.S. government. But it is generally accepted that the white supremacist leaders who assembled that day walked away with two broad conclusions about their future. Number one was the need to use computer networks to organize and coordinate the leaderless resistance beam advocated. Mm -hmm. That'll help. Number two was the value of cell-style organizations and taking the movement forward into the future. The dreams were grand indeed, and Robert Miles sought to establish a series of no less than 600 cells, each 100 miles apart, so the nuclear war they all thought was coming wouldn't wipe them all out. Miles's theories were very much focused around the importance of building a white supremacist movement that could dominate America in the wake of a nuclear exchange with the USSR. Beam anticipated nuclear war too, but he was more interested in building a network of terror cells that could start carrying out attacks on enemies of the white race at once. But in order to do all this, Beam and his fellow fascists were going to need a lot of money. Computer equipment was not cheap in the 1980s, and the insurgency they needed to build required weapons too. Not just civilian weapons, but military-grade equipment, rocket launchers, and machine guns bought from bribed military supply officers. In order to fund all this, Miles suggested robbing armored cars, and bit by bit, a plan began to take hold. (laughs) Louis Beam and William Pierce had spent years sketching out theories and passing out propaganda. They'd been rewarded by an American fascist movement that was hundreds of times larger and more capable than anything George Lincoln Rockwell had commanded. Now it was time to take the next step forward and make the fantasies William Pierce had written down in the Turner Diaries a reality. The man to do that would be young Bob Matthews. Okay. So, that's the end of this chapter. You guys having a good time? Um, yeah. Happy? Everybody feeling um, good? <laughs> I wish we hadn't smoked pot earlier. I wish we hadn't smoked pot earlier. But I'm a little less high. That's great. I'm a little less high. And I'm really excited for this next chapter. I'm excited to throw these seats. Is that, <laughs> has those, seats. Is, is that giant bag of sunflower seeds ever been opened? It hasn't been no. opened. Great. Excellent, then. That's Sophie, wonderful. I had a whole case of Perrier canned water that I, I planned to I do think it might be Perrier. Perrier. But Sophie took the can the, the case away, and I'm very unhappy. Uh, but I am at some point during this recording session going to steal the cans back and throw them. Oh, you, she wasn't on mic, but that was a serious, serious. I'll Sophie throw them moment. at something. I'm going to do some damage. Doesn't seem like you're going to. <laughs> I'm going to believe it. What was that chapter called? Uh, How to build an army. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spelled it out for you. Yeah. Let's see. What should I throw next? Oh, maybe these Kirkland. Okay. Yeah, you can do that. Twenty-something 20 paper towels. Yeah, should soft I, and harmless. I'll do it before. Yeah, you should probably run. Yeah! Oh God, that was a throw. Did you? I'm. You could have hurt yourself. <laughs> that was a big. It's a huge bag of rolls yeah, of it's paper. A, it's paper about towels. the size of you, Katie. It. it yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, last time I met, weighed myself, I was 12 rolls of, of <laughs> paper towels. So you're right. I would mint in like a square footage. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> so, you guys want to plug your websites? <laughs> oh, yeah. Cody, you go. I'm not finishing sentences well today. <laughs> um, Google our names <laughs> and the words like some more news even more news and yeah. the website or like platform that you're looking for patreon, right? like the, patreon and twitter and t public all the things uh, yeah thanks google.com <laughs> and you can use google.com to find out if i sell t-shirts <laughs> he does <I> might <laughs> he does it's on t public <laughs> thank you katie what else we don't have a website Use Twitter. It's a great way <laughs> to connect com? with white nationalists. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. 
it still is that. Yeah. I mean, if you go to our Twitter, you'll see great tweets like from this guy at Salt Throne who wrote more like I pronounce okay, insulting okay. Robert's Twitter handle. That My tweet wife. was made days ago. Sophie has saved it on her phone okay. for this moment. That's a good burn. That's a good burn. She's really, really enjoying it. Really joke. connects with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, the end of the, that's podcast. the, end of the fucking yes. podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.